Welcome everybody to another episode of Mission Daily. Today, we have Gene Berdicheski. He is the CEO of Sela Technologies. Interesting story about him. He was the seventh employee at Tesla. He's now the CEO of a company that's transforming the way batteries are made. And he has 42 patents to his name. Pretty smart guy. Gene, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Albert. All right, Gene, I'm going to get started right where I think everyone wants to know where your expertise is. What is different about what Sela is doing versus what the battery today looks like? So the the battery that we use in all of our consumer devices and in every single electric vehicle is uh, the humble lithium-ion battery, which was first invented in in 1991. The inventors actually just got the Nobel Prize in chemistry uh, this year for for this invention, even though it's transformed our lives for now almost three decades. And that battery has used actually the same chemistry since 1991, which is a metal oxide uh, cathode and a graphite anode. And it's just been perfected and perfected and perfected over these 30 years. And so what we're doing is we're actually moving us to the next generation of battery chemistry that we hope will be used for the next 30 years or so uh, to push all of these devices even even further. And what our technology does is enables the battery to be dramatically smaller. Uh, it's still constructed the same way. It'll power the same kind of electronics. And anywhere where today's lithium-ion batteries used, you'll be able to use our chemistry uh, when we launch. And so we're working on both electric vehicle uh, applications as well as consumer device applications. So some of the articles I've read lately about batteries and some of the metals and mining that it takes to make rechargeable batteries is actually quite challenging, right? And so I was reading about how the way it's mined or gathered today is, you know, negative impacts on the earth, that it's actually not that easy to transform everything over to lithium ion. There, there's a, I guess there's something in the supply chain. I was hoping you could kind of share your knowledge of where lithium ion batteries are today in terms of its manufacturing process and impacts on the environment versus what you're hoping to, to change along with what you're working on. Yeah, and that's a very important aspect of, of batteries. And in general, as we move away from, um, from fossil fuels to powering up cars with uh, battery technology and renewable energy, you really want to think about the whole supply chain so you're not creating a new mess somewhere as you're cleaning up an old one. And so with lithium ion batteries today, particularly in the cathode side, which is the, the half of the battery that stores energy when the battery is, is uh, discharged, that, that half uses metals like cobalt, nickel, uh, and, and manganese, which is actually pretty easy to find. But cobalt and nickel can have constraints, and especially cobalt, um, it has some problematic uh, mining practices. A lot of it comes from Congo. Some cobalt that ends up in our batteries today actually comes from what are known as artisanal mines, is much worse than it sounds. As we do scale up the amount of lithium-ion batteries used for electric vehicles, we have to be really cognizant of that and, and making sure that the supply chain is well traced. Um, you see a lot of companies taking a great interest in exactly where the upstream metals that go into their batteries come from. And so we're, we're about to see about a hundredfold increase in the amount of batteries produced every year for electric vehicles compared wow. to uh, when we didn't have electric vehicles, when it's just cell phones and, and laptops. Um, you can think of it this way. If you drive an electric car, you have about 10,000 times more lithium-ion battery in that electric car than you do in your phone. And eventually, what we hope is that everybody is driving an electric car. And so you're, you're just expanding this production tremendously. So one of the things that our technology, when you know, we, this wasn't the prime purpose of us developing it, but as we've developed our technology, which replaces the graphite anode, We've also wanted to be cognizant of the supply chain. Graphite is also mined. Uh, it's actually primarily dug up out of the earth in, uh, in, in China. Uh, and some of those practices and some of those mines can be quite problematic. There are 
Um, you can find these images where entire cities are just covered in the silver dust of graphite from, from the mining practice. Uh, our technology is based on a silicon material. It ultimately comes back to uh, sand, uh, which is very abundant, and energy. And that energy that is used to convert this sand and, and a couple other precursors that we use uh, that, that are proprietary that we d don't disclose, but a couple of those other precursors in the sand, um, the additional input is just energy. That energy can come from renewable sources. So as we scale up, we think a lot about where to put our factories, and we're going to want to put those near renewable sources like hydropower, Ultimately, I think solar and wind will power many of our production facilities, and we'll be able to move away from some of these mining practices. Uh, our technology doesn't directly address the cathode side of the battery today. Uh, there are other folks working on that. Uh, and again, similarly, there are newer technologies that'll be able to hopefully uh, make some of those mining practices less necessary. Now, real quick for our audience, what's the difference between the cathode and the anode side of the battery? The battery really has four major components. Uh, the anode is the part of the battery that stores lithium when the battery is charged. And then the cathode is the part of the battery that stores lithium when the battery is discharged. And so every time you charge and discharge the battery, the lithium ions are shuffling between the anode and the cathode back and forth. And so your battery needs to have enough capacity to store all the lithium in one state and the other. And so that's why you have both an anode and a cathode. The other two major components in the battery is a separator that sits between the anode and the cathode, keeps them from short circuiting. Uh, it's a pretty benign piece of uh, technology. And the last piece is the electrolyte, which is the liquid that all of this is immersed in and allows the lithium ions to move back and forth between the anode and the cathode. Um, so, so you ultimately need a really good anode and a really good cathode to have a really good battery. We dramatically improve the anode, which makes a really meaningful impact on the overall device. And over time, we're going to want to see improvements in the cathode as well. Now, there's a couple things that your company says it can do that makes it really interesting. Uh, the first one is you said 20% right now is what the Asila battery is going to last 20% longer. Is that accurate? That's right. It, it'll, it'll have 20% higher energy density. So you can either have it last longer or you can make it that much smaller. Gotcha. And then the other thing that I saw on the website that was pretty interesting is that you talked about how the technology today is designed to fit into an existing manufacturing process of batteries. I remember coming from another technology company that one of the big challenges, uh, this happened to be RFID and packaging, was that it was basically not possible because they were like, we're not going to change our entire assembly line so that this can one little thing can go in that's going to be expensive that we don't know if it's going to be you know, relevant or important. You on your website talk about how Sela has technology that allows it the process to be part of my existing process. That's right. So the, we, you know, eight nine years ago when we started the company, we looked at it and said, you know, we knew it was going to take a half decade or a decade to bring this technology to market at scale. And so one of the constraints that we put on our scientists and engineers as they were inventing all of the details of of this uh, new material was that it had to be 100% compatible with existing lithium-ion factories. And we've been proven right in the sense that it was a bet that lithium-ion factories were going to keep getting built at ever larger scales. And today, there is a plan that by 2026 worldwide, we'll have about three terawatt hours of global annual production capacity of lithium-ion, whereas maybe five years ago or eight years ago when we started the company, that total number instead of three terawatt hours was maybe 50 gigawatt hours. So you're, you're talking about something that's almost a uh, uh, hundred times less capacity. And so because of that expansion in traditional lithium ion factories, if we had developed a 
a new chemistry that wasn't compatible, we would have to build, rebuild all of those factories from scratch, or somebody would have. And so it would have ended up being completely impractical. I think your analogy of RFID is, is a good one. You know, nobody put, the, you know, it was really, really promising, really exciting. And then it was difficult to integrate into uh, production lines that, that made conventional packaging. Take me back to that moment when you made this call. I'm sure this was a strategic call. You mentioned before in the earliest days of your business, did the, your fellow team members look at you like you were an alien? Like, are you crazy? Like, why would we do that? We're, we're, we're developing something brand new. Or was it easy to convince and convey? It was easy to convince them partly because one of my co-founders is a colleague of mine from Tesla as well. And we really brought this perspective uh, from our experience there where we understood how powerful the, the technology curve of traditional lithium ion was. And so we knew we wanted to, to ride that technology curve, not compete entirely against it. And then our, our third co-founder is a, is a professor and, and he's, a, he's a very smart guy. So he understood right away. And we had also seen battery technologies spin out of university labs, people working very, very hard to make them successful technically, only to get to a point where things technically worked, but there was no commercial traction. And so it was relatively easy to convince uh, those folks. And, you know, it was, it was easy to convince the right investors in the very beginning that this was the right idea, but not all investors, because many of them wanted to disrupt the whole supply chain, right? And, uh, and I think so I think you have different schools of thought when you go into solving a problem. You know, in this case, I'd say we were largely right. You don't see any brand new battery technologies disrupting the entire supply chain today. And uh, I don't suspect you will for the next decade. I think this couple terawatt hours of global capacity is going to get built out just as planned over the next six or seven years. I mean, it makes sense. Like plans and materials planning for such a large infrastructure project takes years and years in advance to to do. So you know, like you, you mentioned before, like these battery factories that are going to get built in the next 10 years have already been paid or partially paid for and designed and orders have gone in like now. Yeah, people, people are planning for this kind of thing for, for many, many years. And I think when you deal in a world of software where things can change on a dime, it's not, that's not the case. But when you deal in a world of hardware where factories have to be depreciated over 10 or 20 years, that's the other piece of it is nobody's looking to obsolete these factories the minute something new comes along. and so. If an entirely different battery technology were to come along, those folks that are building battery factories today that they expect to run for 20 or 30 years are going to be even more interested in what we have to offer because they're going to have to compete against this new thing and they're going to be looking for every way to, make, to, to keep an edge. So take me back to the origination of the idea, I guess. Did you discover the properties of silicone first as the way to replace graphite? Did you come up with that first or did you see uh, more like hey, there's an opportunity inside of lithium ion. I think we could figure out a different way to possibly change the manufacturing process. Which came first, I guess, the discovery or the opportunity to find a solution? So the, the, chemistry, the chemistry has been well known for a really long time, meaning people have done the fundamental studies in academic settings to show how good silicon can be at storing lithium ions. And so that's, you know, you can actually map that out over the whole periodic table of elements, and there's no secrets there. And I like to say, you know, you, you, you can think of the, the periodic table of elements as fairly small, and so it's not hiding any particular secrets uh, like that at this point in, in development. What's, what's really tricky is how do you make something like that practical? And so even, even when I was at Tesla in circa kind of 2006, 2007, people were already working on silicon uh, anodes for lithium-ion batteries. 
And I think maybe one of the first companies in the space started around 2004 even. But they all had a very similar approach. They were all uh, making particular nano nanostructured shapes of silicon and trying to put them into a traditional battery. And it wasn't working. And it wasn't working for kind of largely the same reasons. And so what we really understood, I think, better than others is, is the problem and wasn't working what wasn't going to work. And so we actually took a shot on something, uh, on a concept, on a way to solve this problem that really we had no way of knowing if it would work or not. And it took us the better part of five years to figure out if our approach and making these really unique engineered composites uh, would, would be successful or not. So we, we just knew it wasn't going to work. And we looked at it and said, we bet that nobody's going to figure out the easy way to do this. Um, our approach was more complicated. Uh, we weren't sure if we were ever going to be able to make it. Uh, and, and then we went and invested the next five years to, to make it work. Now, during that time, were you investing all that time and effort to, you know, effectively come up with a new process or new technologies to harness the power of silicone? What were your, I guess, investors at that time saying? Were they super patient or were they? Like- they were incredibly patient. I think that's a big part of why we're, we're, we've been able to do what we've done. We, we've had very patient investors from day one. They recognize that the opportunity is huge. And sometimes what you actually learn is that the harder the problem the more valuable it is to solve it because you're oftentimes, in that case, the only one on the other side when you get there. Um, and so this turned out to be even harder than we thought. We knew it was going to be hard. And, you know, for example, in the Series A, I think our investors had no illusions that they were investing in largely a science project, um, which most investors don't want to do. But they, they knew that the market was excellent. They knew that uh, if, if anyone was able to get, figure this out, that it would be incredibly valuable. And, you know, I think they, they knew they were betting on a really good team. We were able to attract an incredible team. You know, that, that patience eventually becomes an advantage. Uh, someone else trying to copy us is going to have to go through a lot of the same things. We have over 115 patents now protecting our pets, so they're going to have to find their own way through. Uh, it's likely going to be even harder. And so uh, that patience eventually pays off. So one of my personal favorite entrepreneurs or business leaders that I've read about is James Dyson. And he famously said he went through 5,127 prototypes of the Dyson vacuum before he figured it out. Now you're on record of an article saying you have 35,000 iterations developing your materials. Yeah, that's right. Um, Yeah. And still counting. I think we might probably be up to about 40,000 these days. So we've kept R and D lab going and we keep, we keep iterating and iterating and iterating. And we keep rolling out sort of improved versions of our material. And that's part of how we go from, the 20% improvement that we're offering our customers today to over the next couple of years, we expect to be able to drive about a 40% improvement over state-of-the-art uh, batteries using graphite anodes. So we, we have to keep that going. That's in the DNA of the company. And it's something that we've invested very heavily in automating and having, having it be uh, an incredibly precise research process uh, and continues to pay dividends and, and, you know, as, as we go forward, we're going to continue to invest in that. How about as a culture of leadership? So this is where it's interesting to me, right? Because, you know, there's a lot of, let's say a lot of people want some satisfaction or quick wins uh, in whatever it is they're doing, right? So here you are, you're developing, like you said, 40,000 iterations on your material science. Surely there has to be some failures along the way. How do you keep, I guess, every motivate, everyone motivated? Is it like, hey, look at our history of how well we've done? Or is there just always a little bit of progress each time where 
where everyone knows that the celebration's like around the corner. We might not hit it today, but tomorrow there's another shot. Progress isn't linear in these kind of cases. Uh, it's it's very nonlinear, but you do have you do have moments. You know, it wasn't like five years in we go aha, we've got it. There are moments along the way that gave investors and ourselves confidence um, that that we were making progress. Every time our hypotheses um, were supported by the data, every time we got a little bit closer, um, we we believed more and more that the there was a there there in in the concept and. Um, I think what drives really excellent researchers and engineers trying to develop something new isn't necessarily the end point. Uh, they're driven just as much by the journey and the knowledge and the learning. And so one of our biggest values, one of the things we screen for and one of the things that, that this group is all about is just learning more. And what we've found is actually maybe not surprising if you look at the history of science that in some of the failures and some of the screw-ups in our experiments, we find the most interesting data, which later leads to the breakthroughs. So you have to recognize that it's not the success point around the corner or, or 10 years away that's going to drive the right individuals. It's that journey of being able to uncover something new over and over and over again. And it does turn out that you know you don't get to a 20% improvement by by going right to a 20% improvement, you get there by being able to make one or 2% improvements uh, quite a number of times over and over again. No, I love it. So I think that takes us nicely into this concept of leadership now, right? So previous, your previous history, you weren't the CEO of a company and here you are. How did you learn to embrace the, that journey that you talked about? Was it taught to you another way or who were you following or ment- who was mentoring you along the way to become the leader of a company so that other people would follow that same passion and, and drive to, to build this? Yeah, I, you know, certainly not without mis- making mistakes along the way, um, but that's part of the learning process too. For me, it's been a lot about mentors. It's been a lot about finding uh, people I can I can reach out to and, and ask questions and, and lean on. Some of those have, have actually been our investors in the early days. Uh, I, I spent a year at Sutter Hill Ventures as an entrepreneur in residence, and then they ended up leading our, our Series A financing. Um, and I formed a really close relationship with, with many of the partners there who I leaned on for advice and understanding how to position the business for long-term success. Others are, are other CEOs that have come uh, come before. I have a couple of those folks are on our, our board. You know, a few years ago, we, we added Steve Walski, who built an incredible company. Last year, we added Jeff Immelt, who's obviously seen a lot of things. Um, oh, yeah. you know. <laughs> and then also peers. You know, I think it's, it's probably one of my biggest uh, groups of, of, of folks who I get advice from are other, fo- other CEOs, other hard tech CEOs who um, are going through some of the same things and we share, you know, reasonably openly about what we're struggling with and, and brainstorm how to, how to fix things or see how other people have done it. So I think you just have to recognize going into these kind of situations that what you know and what you don't know, and, uh, and that's important. Uh, and so you keep asking questions and learning from, all, from every direction around you and including uh, other people on the team who might even uh, report to you. You know, they, if you listen carefully, they have a lot of advice. Uh, on on how to how to be better. So, I, I think it comes from all around. I think the one thing you can do is be very clear about what your value what you value and use that as a filter, so that you're not just looking at the advice and seeing did it work for this person or did it not. You're filtering it through your values and your company's values, 
And, you know, sometimes things work for others that just aren't going to work in your organization. I think that comes down to what your organization values. You talked about, you know, knowing what you know and what you don't know. I guess, what did you identify early on that you need, you were going to need help with? Because I feel like, you know, that's one of the biggest challenges for a lot of people is they actually can't identify what weaknesses they may have and where they need to maybe find a co-founder or a team member that, that complements their strengths. Yeah. So a, a couple of things. I think this is true of a lot of technical CEOs like myself. You know, I started my career as an engineer. I love doing engineering. But even in, and, and then in this company and studying this company, I, I got pretty far out of my depth or had to go to another level of science uh, for the product we're making. So, you know, I knew that I was a pretty good engineer, but there are people who are even deeper in the field. And so having a co-founder who's a professor in material science and had spent, you know, his career going much deeper than I have into lithium-ion batteries was critical to the success of this company and recognizing very quickly that I'm not going to be the most technical uh, individual on the, on the early team. And then the other thing that, that I recognized pretty quickly as well is that having spent up to then my fairly short career doing only technical things, I knew very little about business. And so, you know, to compensate for that, I spent most of my time thinking about that and finding mentors and, and advisors to think about what it meant to actually run a business, how to operate a business, how to how to think about finance, how to think about all these topics, business development, how to think about all these topics that were foreign to me. I think one mistake I see entrepreneurs make is, is staying within their comfort zone. And so if uh, engineers and technical folks come in and they want to stay close to that engineering and technology, and they don't recognize that, you know, by that point in their life, they've probably spent, you know, 20 years being the best in their class, being technical, and zero years of their life thinking about, you know, marketing or PR or recruiting or all of these other topics. Uh, so I just made it a point to spend a lot of my time on non-technical topics and finding people and advisors for that. So that actually brings up a great question, which is, you know, you, you started the company, you found a professor with more technical experience, as you mentioned, to join you. I guess, how did you become the CEO? Did, the, did everyone like say, you're the guy because you're willing and interested in doing these other things? Were you always going to be the CEO? How did that role become? your role? I think it was going to depend a lot on the kind of company I was going to start. I knew I wanted to work in energy. I thought batteries were a likely field. So I actually looked at a lot of different companies and, and thought about partnering up with quite, quite a number of folks. And in some of those cases, I would have been the more technical person and would have taken a technical leadership role. In this case, where we're going so deep in the science, where we needed to, to stretch the, the scientific muscle of our founding team. I was kind of at the right intersection of technical enough, but had always been interested in building a business, had spent the time at the venture firm learning, learning what it meant to build a VC-backed business, how to, how to position it. So it, it, it was fairly natural from, from the founding team. And then from there, you know, it was sort of continuous learning about what does this job even mean and uh, what do I need to be doing to be good at it? Uh, you know, I just kept asking that question. You're pushing the boundaries of what materials engineering, battery science can be. You're looking for these big breakthroughs. Are there any big breakthroughs you remember that were, because I feel like in the beginning, right, everyone's looking for that little bit of light that says, hey, we're onto something. We can do this. Do you remember what that moment was like where you were like, okay, we are definitely heading down that right path. Was there ever like that jumping moment where you said, oh, okay, this is it. We have, we're, we're getting close. Even though I know you mentioned before, you're at 20% today, your goal is to get to 40, maybe even higher, and you're never going to stop learning. But what was that first moment where it was like, hey, we, we might be onto something? Yeah, it's, you know, I do remember it. And, um, and as I mentioned, you know, sometimes 
sometimes it's sort of the failures that that lead you there. So we were doing a lot of experiments looking at the at the process space, you know, changing the various recipe parameters as we as we synthesized this material, temperatures, pressures, gas compositions, we're sort of changing all these parameters, making different versions, looking at the properties, looking at which ones perform better and worse, try to get a direction of where to go. And we had, uh, we, we were based at Georgia Tech at the time, and we had some failures where actually in the building, there was a lot of labs. We were in a big shared building and somebody in some of their labs set something off, which triggered the fire alarm. And this is a true story. We, t- we had to shut down all the tools and sort of leave the building, right? Evacuate the building. And it was a bummer because these recipes, they would take sometimes four or six hours to run. So you sort of just lost that run. And, uh, and once we shut, shut it down, came back, sort of restarted the run, uh, or we debated. We said, you know, this run is probably scrap. Uh, but somebody goes, let me just restart it. It's pro- you're probably right. It's probably scrap. And, and so we sort of did this run one and a half times in synthesizing the material. And later we sort of put the material on test anyways. We're like, it's probably scrap, but let's just test it anyways. And it worked amazingly well, like in a way we'd never seen before. And so we started to, we said, well, let's go look at the logs, right? We, we were religious about logging all the data. And of course, because we had shut it down in a rush, we had no logs. All the data was wiped. And so we had this material, which we made under a recipe we didn't control, where we didn't have the data, but it worked really well. And so we spent the next two months trying to figure out what is it that we actually did and what was, you know, what is it about this process that we didn't understand that led to this result? And once we uncovered that, that was, you know, definitely the beginning of a, of a pretty distinct chain of knowledge that, that led us to, to making some major improvements. And, you know, there's, there's probably two or three times in the company's life that things like that would happen where something odd would happen. Um, and, uh, you know, and usually there's probably hundreds of times where something odd would happen, but there are two or three times where that oddness led to some result that when we stared at it long enough, we kind of said, actually, there's something really interesting here. Let's understand it. And it's through that understanding then that led us to, you know, I would, I would call it major, not breakthroughs, but they open up a different branch of knowledge that you can, that you can pursue. That's a serious reverse engineering, right? Where yeah. <laughs> you've accidentally done something and you're like, all right, let's figure out how we did that. Yeah. We accidentally made this good. Now let's, uh, let's figure out what happened. <laughs> so you, so, you know, I'm thinking of like the evolution of this company. And one of the things that's always challenging is your first sale or getting that first customer, right? So here you are, you're inventing a new type of process. You're telling people that it's going to work directly into their existing batteries manufacturing process. How did you convince, or was it easy to convince uh, that first company or customer to give your, your batteries a try? Because, you know, like I know for myself, when people want to sell me something new, I'm always a little bit skeptical. And I think that's, that's natural, right? I'm sure a lot of people have told battery companies, Hey, I can do something for you. Right. Talk to me about that first, I guess, you know, it's like, it's like a sale, right? And were you ready for it or how did you push through to get the customer to convince to try it? And once they try it, of course, I'm sure the technology spoke for itself. There's a lot of developmental timelines in, in batteries. And so it's even getting someone to trial it, much less buy it, you know, is a, it can be, can be a big step. There's a couple things we, we, we did. One is we didn't really want to make any noise as a company until we felt like we had something very real. Um, so we didn't start having any press until year seven in the company's life. And that was very deliberate. We wanted to keep a very low profile. The battery industry has been full of false promises over the decades. Uh, if you you know if you Google 10x battery improvement, 
you can find a news article literally from every year that says batteries are about to get 10 times better. And so I, I, I used to even joke with investors, I'd show a slide that showed, look, we must have a million times better batteries now. And then you look at the reality and they improved, you know, a couple percent every year for the last half decade. So some, there's that, that narrative of this, this, whole, this holy grail of batteries is pretty false. And so one of the things we did is we just leaned right into that and we said, look, you know, we, we told the truth. It's a 20% improvement. It's not a 2x improvement today because to get a 2x improvement, what you're really doing is using a really poor baseline. You're comparing against something that's not state of the art. So we were, we were honest. We were upfront about it. We, would, we used to tell customers, you know, the difference between our stuff and others is it works today. You can actually sample it and test it. And so that won a lot of credibility early on. And we would also t- show our customers everything that didn't work at the time and a plan for how we were going to make it work. So those were, that was the approach. And in a market when, where you have a lot of noise, being more transparent, showing the data, that went a long way. And uh, you know, part of how we were able to win partners like BMW and Daimler is, is you know, it's not just them testing the technology because it's you know the technology is not at a scale where it can go into a car today. It's not ready to to be in production today. We have uh, another few years of development and scaling up, manufacturing scale up to go before we can be in a car you can buy. So you're not really trying to convince folks that it's all ready and done. You're trying to convince folks that you understand the path and you understand the gaps between here and there. The reality is when you're talking about anything that in a supply chain of that size, I think you hit on that most people don't understand is just the level of preparation, right? So you talked about like you're a couple of years away from uh, being production ready or, you know, at, at that's at the size and scale of a BMW. For, or a for automotive. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. For Daimler. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit. Like what, what goes into that mindset, that process and, a lot of people are in this uh, mode of, hey, they want some gratification or they, they like that response, that reward response mechanism. Hey, I have software. I sell it to you. You buy it. It scales infinitely, right? <laughs> Here you are. You're in a different ball game. You're absolutely transforming the way batteries are going to be made. But at the same time, you just can't turn it on overnight. Talk about that mindset of developing for that supply chain. I think it's a bit of the adage, if you can't hide it, feature it. So that's true. And that's, that's a feature for us, not a bug. Uh, that turns into a competitive advantage, and the more systematically and with the more systematically and with the right level of patience as we go through this, if we rush, we're just going to have to do it again. We're going to have to do it twice. So you you rush through something that should take you three years, and you do it in two, but it's not going to work as well. So you're going to need another two to do it again. So it's a um, it's a mindset uh, of you know slow is smooth and smooth is fast, where you get there you get there faster if you're being really deliberate about it. And what you're doing the whole time is you're building competitive advantage against folks that are trying to sort of short, take shortcuts. Uh, ultimately, you're, you're building something that keeps compounding, keeps growing. You know, in the meantime, we're, part of our business strategy has been to make products that fit not just the automotive market. There are some battery technologies that can be used in automotive, but not nowhere else. Our technology can be used in consumer as well. And that's a massive advantage for a couple of reasons. One is we do get to market sooner. We, we do expect to be in the market in the next year or so in consumer devices. And so the automotive partners build a lot of confidence from seeing those devices in the field. And we build a lot of confidence from establishing a manufacturing culture, a manufacturing environment, all the quality systems, all the processes for actually delivering exactly what we promise. And we get real revenues. 
with good margins today. And so if you're, uh, if you're just working on a car platform, it can be a seven-year process from the time your technology worked, right? And so it's very hard to keep a business and a team motivated. Um, whereas, you know, we're building, we're building devices across half a dozen battery manufacturers today in qualification for a bunch of different products that keeps the team really motivated. And we're working on this long-term mission of, of transforming the automotive segment with our technology. So next year, consumer products are going to be sold with Sela batteries so, or Sela materials, Sela nanotechnology. Sela inside. Uh, yeah, that's right. We, we expect that to be the case. And, you know, obviously we have to finish all the certification and qualification processes, but that's, uh, that's the current trajectory. Do you think consumers will immediately notice a difference? I certainly hope so. I think they're going to notice it in different ways. It's not, uh, it's not necessarily because, you know, your phone doesn't, doesn't run out at, uh, at the end of the day. That's sort of one, one way you could take advantage of technology. But what we actually expect to see is customers using it to add new features. So you'll have just better products with more features. And so you'll notice the new features. You won't notice that it was because Sela made, made the battery so much smaller that, that that new feature was able to be added. The battery takes up an enormous amount of space in a phone in a smartwatch, in any of these devices, the battery is usually half the volume and weight, uh, especially in the smaller devices. And so by, by shrinking it, you're going to have a better designed product uh, you're going to have, or you'll have some additional features you didn't have before. And, and so consumers won't necessarily attribute that to us, but, but that's the value we bring. So are you responsible for these four, five camera configs that are happening in cell phones right now? Not today, but, <laughs> but, but we certainly, you know, you can, uh, if you want more camera, you can certainly have it by shrinking the battery. So, you know, we, we, we like to see trends like that because it, it, as long as consumers actually like the features, uh, there's going to be more demand for it. And that's going to put more pressure on, on uh, our customers to, to, uh, to shrink the battery. And we're there to help. That's an interesting way to phrase it. Cause I was thinking about, so some of my background I have is in like, just cause I'm interested in it is racing, automotive racing, right? They're always trying to figure out ways to cut a couple ounces here, a couple pounds here like right they're always trying to squeeze more into like a configuration i never thought of it in the way you are which is the fact that your battery can is 20 percent smaller today or could be potentially 40 percent smaller in the future like that's that's quite a bit that's going to mean a lot to a lot of different makers of different things especially because most folks don't usually think about how big the battery is of the device but if you ever look at these teardowns of of a phone it's mostly battery or a laptop i mean a laptop the processor board underneath your uh, underneath your keyboard maybe takes up like you know the number pad and that's it right it's it's a tiny tiny piece and the rest is battery and so I mean it'll shrink that but leave you the features you want you know it creates a lot of space uh, for for a fairly low investment from from the device maker so it's very natural for them to want it and uh, and we've we've had great reception in the market as we as we're going through this now we've got to qualify and scale up and and uh, and, and then keep scaling for a long, long time. On your website, you talk about aviation. Tell me about where you think this is going to impact aviation. So a couple of things. So we, we see uh, it'll, it'll start on a smaller uh, scale aviation first, um, but we see customers, customers come to us from a lot of different segments, everything from, you know, small, single two engine for personal aircraft that, that folks are wanting to make electric. So of course the air taxis that you hear a lot about, whether it's you know the things like Uber Elevate or, or a lot of these other companies in the space, the very nature of that product is most dependent on having a great battery. And where batteries are today, 
you can just get there. You can sort of just have a product that's okay. You can get to maybe a 30 minutes, you know, of flight time and you're going pretty fast. You're going, uh, you know, 100, 150 miles an hour in these, in these vehicles. So you can get 75 miles, you know, in that 30 minutes. But what's really interesting about, for example, air taxis is they have to keep almost a 30 minute reserve on one end and they use a lot of power on the takeoff as well. And so to, to go the distance, they may be using half the battery. And so for this, the 75 miles, they maybe use half the battery and then the rest they have to keep in reserve. When we extend the runtime of that battery by, by another 40%, let's say, we can almost double the range. And so now all of a sudden you get something that can't quite make it from San Francisco to San Jose to something that can actually get you across the entirety of the Bay Area or the entirety of any kind of uh, metropolitan area. And so a better battery can completely transform those kind of applications. You know, when you do the math, you can actually see that in the in the reasonably near term, you can get to regional aircraft as well. So going from, you know, different design for the for the aircraft, but going from, let's say, San Francisco to LA uh, could, could go electric in a lot sooner than, than folks think. Now, vehicle platforms takes maybe five to seven years to go from clean sheet to start a production. Airplanes take closer to 10 or sometimes 15. So, you know, when I say soon that's soon in aviation terms you know i wouldn't expect to to uh to be taking a southwest flight on an electric plane sort of in the next in the next five years here i'm not really even thought about electric planes at all personally but i mean i love the fact i love what you're seeing uh, the, some of the vision that you're sharing for what you're doing it's not just startups too that come to us in these in these for these kind of applications a lot of the big companies are thinking about this as well so you know obviously we can't talk about specifics of specific partners or customers but but i think broadly we're seeing a massive shift in interest and and the the battery improvements that we can make can radically transform what kind of products you have in that space what would you say your core focus is are you trying to just you know develop materials to better uh in the the energy space specifically are you an open-ended like we're we're a material science type company we look for different ways to innovate the future or do you always want to look for things inside of energy yeah, we, we, we certainly want to look for impact. Uh, we primarily, we, we are built to be a material science company that can bring entirely new classes of materials to the world that have never been uh, developed or used before. And we've, we've trained that, that skill set and that tool set onto the, to the energy storage space specifically, even more focused than just energy broadly. And we think that there's a massive amount of opportunities there. Uh, even beyond our first products, so that's our that's our home turf, that's our core. Uh, but ultimately, our I think our mission is is about having an impact. The impact we can have with these uh, energy storage materials is to accelerate the world's transition to electrified vehicles. That's probably the biggest driver. And we also see how that same technology, driven by the scale of automotive, will transform our grid and make it uh, more amenable to 100% wind. Uh, wind, water, solar renewables with the right battery technologies, you can you can absolutely get to a place where where everything is powered by wind, solar, and, and hydro. Uh, so we're certainly focused on that today. But our tools, our toolkit, and and the kinds of technologists and scientists that we that we hire and the core competencies we've built are all around engineering extraordinarily hard material science problems. So we can look to apply that to other areas uh, one day in the future, but that's sort of a, a long way away. And I think the lens we would use would be impact, uh, would be looking at, you know, can we, can we transform some other adjacent space through some material that allows you to use 
you know, in the case of batteries, in the case of these materials, if we can enable the world to use just dramatically less fossil fuels and, and allow the batteries to be recyclable, then you can make a fairly closed loop uh, system there that's much more sustainable. And you can see that in other industries and other, in other sectors that can be enabled by solving extraordinarily hard material science problems, you know, materials that enable you to use half the amount of a structural material that you would before for example, could reduce how much energy is used to, in, the, uh, in our built environment. Materials that help you transform heat transfer, right, could reduce the amount of heating and cooling one needs. So there's, there's certainly a lot of opportunities, but our, I would say our next decade is squarely focused on energy storage. The thing you just mentioned was, I would just start thinking about, which is um, in-body health devices, like pacemakers and things like that, like you effectively could make smaller ones thanks to you absolutely you can you can impact people's health you know I, with with better materials so there's there's a tremendous amount of opportunity you know as a startup you you've got to be laser focused you've got to be laser focused on your first product first market first application um, so we do that but but we, we we do like to dream of a future when we can we can have more than more than the one product and impact a lot more things around us no that's fascinating you know I'm interviewed um, a venture capitalist before his name is Simeon Dukach. And he mentioned before, he, he told me like, so he man- manages a fund called One Way Ventures and they specifically focus on funding immigrants from other countries. Cause he says, he says mathematically, statistically, what they've overcome is already so relevant and so, so, so strong that their, their likelihood for drive, success, everything about them is going to be a more likely to succeed scenario. Now I've read that you are, or you yourself are an immigrant, right? Born in Ukraine. I'm myself an immigrant. That's right. That's right. And do you think that played a part in who you became as you came to the United States studying as a young child? Did you drive you to study engineering and science or were you just already naturally interested in that, that field? Um, no, I, absolutely. I think, I think it played a part. I, I, I think sort of my, my folks played a bigger part. You know, whether they were immigrant or not, they, they, they pushed uh, education as a, as, a, uh, as a way forward. They, they were themselves engineers. I think there was always a strong uh, influence that I should be good at math. That was a uh, uh, It's like the de facto, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm obviously Chinese immigrant families. Like, math is like the universal language, right? So everyone's like, hey, you should at least at minimum be good at this. Yeah, summers, summers in, you know, uh, I think early, late, late elementary school, early middle school was, they would leave me at home and hand me a calculus book. And if I'd solved a couple of the, a couple dozen problems by the time they got home, um, then, you know, I could go out and play, right? That was, that was the rules. <laughs> so I, I um, and I do think that the, that seeing the world through this lens, uh, you know, kind of coming to a foreign land and having to see the world for what it is and, you know, learning to observe and, and does shape your perspective. And I think the way that that ties into uh, starting companies is to, to be successful at starting a company, you need two things or at least these two things, in my view, which is a, a unique perspective on the world. You know, people talk about vision, but I think it's about having a unique perspective on the world and uh, that other people don't have. And then that perspective better be right. So, <laughs> so I think, but I think having kind of an immigrant's perspective does, does usually lend you to have that first piece. And then it's not always right, but it's a, it's a necessary condition uh, of building something unique. Uh, and then of course you need, you need a huge amount of drive and, and, uh, and then you need a lot of people with a lot of drive. So you want to have a lot of like-minded folks, um, that, uh, that, you know, 
a lot of the folks we recruit in the early days of a startup are, are people that we've known for a long time. And so you, you, you associate with people with similar values, which tends to be about hard work and, and learning. Now, how about today? So when you're talking about recruiting for SELA, from what I, everything I've read and from what I understand, there's just a, there's just a shortage of uh, students studying like the hard sciences, engineering, materials engineering, the things that you probably need to be successful at your company. Do you, are you seeing that or are you, are, is your company at a place where because you're, at, you're just doing such groundbreaking things that, you know, you kind of get a lot of applicants? I think we've been fortunate because there's such fierce competition in the, in the uh, computer science world. Uh, and that world has taken so much of the capital for innovative co- technology companies uh, as a percentage of, of the pie. It's all shifted there. Um, there's actually sort of less really exciting, really interesting things happening in hard tech. Uh, but the amount of the amount of brilliant people coming into the field continues to be quite high because not everyone's interested in in software engineering. And so we've you know as a result, it, it, it's uh, I, I don't think I th- I certainly think we have a slightly easier time compared to software tech companies in the Bay Area from being able to identify uh, unique talent that fits with our company and our culture. We mostly use, so the way we approach recruiting is we spend a lot of time trying to understand how a person's values align with our company values, which are all on our website and one can, can read, but we try to dig really deep and understand where's the person really coming from and what motivates them, what drives them. And we look for that alignment. And I'd say that that's actually typically a harder screen than the technical competence of an individual. But certainly, you know, recruiting is never easy by virtue of all the capital going into, into, into software. There's less, there's fewer uh, sort of really, really exciting opportunities to do similar things to what we're doing. No, that's fantastic. I did want to also ask another question. Obviously, you, you talked about working with great mentors and having immigrant parents. And one of the things I noticed about myself, like I, if I think about myself, right, when I had an opportunity at a big company, my mom and dad were kind of like, don't ever leave it, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so here you are at Tesla, you're working with, Elon Musk was considered ground, you know, like one of the visionaries, even, even before Tesla truly got off the ground and had a model out, like people were always like, he's going to figure it out, right? Mm-hmm. And so what lessons did you learn there? What gave you, what did you learn? What gave you the confidence also to say like, Hey, Tesla's great, but I have a bigger idea. Talk to me about that transition from working for, you know, working for a great company to saying, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to venture on my own. Well, it's funny. I think my parents had a similar desire for me to go work at some big company. And so when I called them up and, and told them that I'm dropping out of school and I'm starting at a six person company, on Monday, uh, you know, they, they, they were very nervous and it took them a few days to get over it. Um, it all worked out in the end. And, uh, but yeah, and as Tesla was getting to maybe be a few hundred people and we were launching the Roadster, you know, I, I kind of came to a crossroads, which was, do I want to spend another half a decade to make a real big impact here? Uh, work on the Model S at the time was, was going to be the next car, or do I want to try to take what I've learned going from, you know, seven people to 300 and from clean sheet of paper to a product and apply that somewhere else. And I, I just wanted to do the latter. I was very motivated to, you know, I saw what it took to build that, those, that first car uh, at Tesla and, and I wanted to, to kind of do it myself. So that was, that was a big, big driver. I saw that it wasn't, I saw that it wasn't magic. I saw that it was a, a ton of hard work. I saw that it was about finding great people, which Tesla had a knack for doing, you know, and, and actually 
so I, a lot of the folks that we recruited were, were great people I knew from then. Um, we actually just added a former colleague of mine who was back then a, a, a great mentor uh, in in um, in Kurt Kelty, who's who's joined us about a week ago here as our vice president of automotive. Uh, and I had, you know, I worked with him at Tesla, where where he led built built all of Tesla's relationships with battery manufacturers, and and, and uh, now he's going to help us build all those relationships with battery manufacturers and car makers. So it's it's really fun to work with some of those same folks that that you learn so much from. I think a big driver was just, you know, let's take what we've learned and and let's apply it and learn a lot more. Uh, and and that's definitely turned out to be the case. And I I wouldn't do it any other way. That's amazing. Thank you for joining us today on Mission Daily. So I always think of myself as environmentalist and a technologist, meaning I enjoy the environment, like surfing is my favorite thing. So the fact that your technology is going to help fundamentally change, hopefully forever, the environment for the better, I'm happy for. And of course, I'm not willing to give up a cell phone. So I do want that in my existence. So I feel like you're helping me have the best of both worlds here. Yeah, we're just going to help you have better products that happen to be greener. Uh, The electric cars that are much better than anything that you've driven before. That's perfect. Gene, thanks again for joining us today on Mission Daily. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everybody. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.